for all of you out there in your boats at dawn or behind the wheel of your big machines on long drives, this is late night Canadian political philosophy with Scorpio Magoose coming to you from downtown Moncton, Canada. I'm your host, Brian Esparza Walker, political scientist, doctor of philosophy, citizen of New Brunswick, providing philosophical light for winter nights. The first 10 episodes of this series are devoted to a philosophical history and analysis of New Brunswick's various official languages acts over the past 50 years and how they've made New Brunswick into the only province in Canada with provincial level bilingualism. The idea behind this podcast is to make a virtual tour around institutions in Moncton, New Brunswick that represent Acadian super representation and super funding and to use these as a way of talking about some of the broader changes in what it means to be a progressive in uh, North America from the 1980s onwards so that my micro level focus is Acadia but my broader context is to try to chart some of the broader shifts in the continental mind. Today's episode is a twofer, uh, a double bill, because I'm going to discuss both the Acadian nationalist office building in downtown Moncton, La Place de la Cathédrale, where many of the 21 federally funded Acadian rights organizations have their head offices, and I'm also going to talk about the Acadian nationalist cathedral upstairs, Notre-Dame de l'Assomption, both of these on St. George Street in downtown Moncton. The funding for Place de la Cathédrale comes from the Office of the Commissioner for Official Languages at the federal level, Jeanette Petitpas-Taylor, who allocates approximately $4 million each year to 21 separate Francophone organizations to help them promote French-speaking culture in New Brunswick. Several of these organizations have pooled their resources and they created this pro-Acadian political institution which opened in 2018. Now, if there were an English language equivalent to this building across the street from it, I would not have launched this podcast. The problem is that the Constitution of Canada and the law of New Brunswick says that there's supposed to be cultural equality here, but no equivalent amount of money is given to non-Acadian groups to represent themselves so that only Acadians have a publicly subsidized nationalist office building like this. It's worth noting, I think, that the name of the building, Place de la Cathédrale, and all the signage is exclusively in French. One of the facets of bilingualism in New Brunswick that I find most surreal is that even though the Acadians say that bilingualism is their great goal, whenever they have a chance to do things the way they like it, it's French-only spaces. I think their idea is that for every all-English space in the province of New Brunswick, there should be an equivalent all-French space. So it's a form of segregated bilingualism or two-solitude bilingualism. That means that 
the English are put into the paradoxical position of needing to learn French if they want to do things like take part in the upper levels of civil service in their own province, but they're not actually going to be living with French people because French people want their own separate systems as much as possible. So the uh, bilingualism is for English people. It's not necessarily for French people. The Acadian Cathedral and the monument to Acadian rites that is built upstairs for it, the Cathedral Notre-Dame d'Assomption, is known among Acadians as the Monument de la Reconnaissance. That's the monument of the recognition of Acadian rights. Uh, both of these institutions are ultimately the product of a separatist movement within the Catholic Church in the late 19th century. It used to be that the French and the English both worshipped together in St. Bernard's Parish in Moncton, but the French Canadians decided that they would separate and go off and build their own church. Aesthetically speaking, the results are really quite impressive, particularly in the marvelous stone crypts down in the cellar that hold the earthly remains of Monsignor Cormier and Bishop Melanson and all the others who benefited from fomenting a separatist movement in their parish. In fitting recognition of their years of service to the Acadian nationalist cause, these representatives of the elite families of Acadia lie in magnificent stone sarcophagi in a building that's continually restored through public funding. I guess I should probably make it clear that the Monument de la Reconnaissance is, at least in my humble opinion, an extraordinary work of art. One of the most beautiful buildings in New Brunswick, I think, in a style a bit reminiscent of the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building, in the United States, which were built at exactly the same time. Like them, the Cathedral de l'Assomption is built in a, a streamlined, modern, art decorative style. It was designed by the Sherbrooke architect uh, Louis-Napoleon Audet and built by the local construction firm of Ambrose Wheeler. I should mention that all my historical details here are taken from Robert Pichette's book, La Cathédrale Notre-Dame de l'Assomption, a publication of the uh, Center for the Research on Études Acadiennes. So it's very sober, restrained, kind of a masculine style of Catholicism, and a perfect blend of Art Deco modernism with very strong Gothic and medieval traces. So it's a kind of got a, a seigneurial era, a trace in the facade that I find, in retrospect, v very appropriate because it's predictive of the role that the ethnic entrepreneurialism of the French priests in the 19th century played in laying the groundwork for the neo-aristocratic turn uh, in, in New Brunswick in the 1970s and 1980s. The name of the building that the Acadians give it, the Monument de la Reconnaissance, the monument to the recognition of Acadian rights. The name gives off a certain feudal echo, I think, especially since 
according to the Robert Dictionnaire Historique de la Langue Française, one of my most treasured reference books, the word reconnaissance, the French word recognition has almost exactly the same meaning. It first entered the English language about the time of the Middle Ages, and it was used as a term to recognize the vassalage relationship that one had to a local lord. Later on, reconnaissance took on a more general meaning, but its feudal origin of recognizing feudal or seigneurial rights still echoes in the word reconnaissance just as much as the style of the Middle Ages and a nostalgia for seigneurial style honors shines underneath the Art Deco swank of the building as a piece of architecture. In any case, the building is three things simultaneously, a Roman Catholic cathedral, at the same time a political office building, at the same time a monument that the Acadians funded among themselves to attest to their conception of themselves as a people deserving and needing a monument to their peoplehood for all to see, since no other people in New Brunswick really get recognition or public representation in this way, it's another good example of Acadian super-representation. Anybody who decides to visit Moncton in order to check out the veracity of what I'm saying in this podcast uh, might visit the church. You can uh, pay an admission fee, and after a tour of a museum to the Acadian history, you get to visit the church a little bit, and I encourage you to check out the stained-glass windows in the transept of the church, where in a normal Catholic church you'd find a stained-glass portrayal of the life of St. Joseph or St. Cunegonde. In the Acadian church, the stained-glass windows tell the history of the Acadian people. So instead of the miracle of the fishes, you can see in the east window where a stained-glass panel memorializes the founding in 1903 in Waltham, Massachusetts, of the Société Mutuelle de l'Assomption, which was the first Acadian life insurance company and a major funding source for Acadian projects. Check out as well the West Window and the scene where the Acadian rights booster, Monsignor Richard, sits at the foot of Pope Pius IX, receiving a golden chalice with an engraved promise that the Acadians would get their own archbishop. Other churches memorialize the Catholic saints and martyrs in the Acadian church. It's the heroes of their own nationalist movement and the bankers of the movement that get the stained glass windows. The Catholic fathers who did so much to set down the roots of ethnic nationalist sentiments in French Canada were very much like similar ethnic entrepreneurs among the Scots and Irish in the 1880s and 1890s, when the romantic revival of Irish and Scottish nationalism uh, brought in tartans for the Scottish and St. Patrick's Day celebrations and so on. But the Irish and Scottish nationalisms were always to some degree ambivalent about their imperial connections with Britain. Stressing one's Celtic or Gaelic roots was a way of emphasizing that was one was not a, a bloody Saxon, uh, not an English person in, the, in that way. And this ethnic 
underdog insouciance was always directed against the dominance of London and the Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Norman upper class. This ambivalence about empire in the English is to be contrasted with the Acadian Catholic fathers who remained very enthusiastically in favor of France and the old imperial connections and passed that on to their descendants. Despite all the misleading talk that goes on in Eastern Canada about a quiet revolution in the 60s and 70s or a, a refus global, there was never really a, a post-colonial moment in Quebec or Acadia since the post-1970s period saw an ever-tighter embrace of the political-military theology taught by the Catholic priests. And the current segregated society in New Brunswick in 2022 seems in some ways like the apotheosis of French imperial designs for New France, not in any way a rupture with or a questioning of the past. To see what I mean by this flash forward from the end of the 1930s when the Cathédrale de l'Assomption was built to the life of the next generation of activist Acadian priests. In 1968, President Charles de Gaulle of France invited Father Clément Cormier, who was the founder of the modern-day University of Moncton, and three other Acadian notables to be received at his office in Paris, where he offered the Acadian people, through the representatives, a preferential status as a protected people. All this is from Robert Pichette's other book, the fatuously but accurately titled Le Bonheur Retrouvé, which is all about de Gaulle's connections with the Acadian people. Pichette uh, reminds us that de Gaulle kind of gave preferential status to the Acadians and that that meant that from that point on, France would station a consulate in Moncton where all the friends of France from the maritime provinces could come together and promote the, uh, uh, the advancement of French culture in Moncton and projects favoring Francophones more generally. In this period, de Gaulle was attempting to reassert French gloire after the ignominious and morally compromising retreat of France from Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco in the 1950s and the 1960s. Francophones might learn to forget all those traumatic experiences by embracing the idea of a league of French-speaking nations. In practical terms, this meant that the French government would give active support to independence movements in Canada, including among the people of Quebec and Acadia. From this point on, Acadians would be able to count on a steady resource flow from France in dip terms of diplomats and officials sent out to offices in the Atlantic provinces with a mission to help the French in Canada and the Acadians with their cause. It was during this period of French imperial favor that Antonine Maillet, the Acadian writer, was awarded the Goncourt Prize, one of the principal French literary prizes for a book, Pélagie la Charette, you've got to read it, and in dozens of other ways, the French tried to further the Acadian cause. 
In most of the rest of the world, the period from 1939 or so onwards was experienced as a time of retreat from empire and of decolonization. So Britain encouraged India to independence after the Second World War, and then in the 1950s and the 1960s, France lost its colonies in Vietnam and North Africa. Britain abandoned its mandate in Palestine, lost its influence in Kenya. During all this time, however, Acadia remained a rather faithful imperial daughter. And in some ways, French interference in the internal affairs of eastern Canada greatly intensified during the period 1970 to 2020. Post-colonialism and anti-imperialism were huge influences in English Canada during this period. By the late 1970s, English New Brunswick had by and large adopted a post-colonialist attitude of diffidence towards the province's old imperial ties and let go of nostalgia for the British Empire. In French-speaking New Brunswick, by contrast, the so-called post-colonialist period was actually spent trying to get closer to Paris and to the old mother country, cultivating solidarity with Francophones in other countries and joining together with them to construct an alternative to English dominance. So it was a post-colonialism exactly in line with the French imperial foreign policy of the time, what we might call colonialist anti-colonialism. In other words, pseudo-anti-colonialism. Just as with social contract thinking, the Acadians took the parts of the theory that they liked and left behind the values like equality and civic fraternity. Acadians consider themselves, on the one hand, anti-imperialist guerrilla fighters in a worldwide movement of revolutionary ferment. At the same time, they courted the favor and resources that they could get from backers back in France. Leather jacket and militant beret in the street, French genealogical almanac on the bedside table at home. In John Edward Beliveau's book, The Monctonians, A History of the City, he describes the Université de Moncton founder Clément Cormier as a Kennedy-style integrationist who, in his later years, grew to be appalled by the segregationist direction taken by the Acadian activists. As Beliveau describes it, Cormier, quote, had wanted to see a disadvantaged minority trained to join the mainstream of Canadian life, and he had achieved this to a remarkable degree, but there were some who preferred to hide themselves in separate corners, politically, linguistically, and socially, and this was what disturbed the educator in his later years. Now, the cynical realist, and I will admit I'm a bit of that, a cynical realist might suggest that Cormier shouldn't have been quite so surprised that the next step, using the institutional infrastructure that the Catholic entrepreneurial priests had built, that the next step was to create a full-on segregationist society hived off from the main one. But Cormier was himself really just the latest of a long series of French priests who acted as ethnic entrepreneurs, going back all the way to Father Le Loutre at the time of the deportation, who had played such a large role helping indigenous war strategists to bedevil the English. When Canada shifted to a group rights-focused model, 
from the mid-1980s onwards, Francophones profited from an immense ideological and infrastructural work done in the pre-1970s era by nationalist priests like Clément Cormier in New Brunswick or Lionel Grou in Quebec. Relatively speaking, everybody else in society was unarmed both ideologically and infrastructure-wise so that the culturally well-endowed Francophone rights maximalists came out on top right out of the starting gate and never really looked back. Nationalism and ethnic communitarianism make good forms of secular religion because the love of kith and kin is such a powerful, powerful and profound constant in human life. So theology and political romanticism make a very powerful combination. The theological residue in nationalism makes one think that whatever one does is righteous because of the old holdover from the ultramontane Catholicism of the 19th century, the idea that the English embody the devilish Protestants, the heathens, so that in fighting against the English, one is fighting for the true faith. Perhaps that is why that as late as the mid-20th century, it was always Catholic priests such as Clément Cormier or Lionel Grou who persuaded young French Canadians to see themselves as nationalists, raised in a struggle against the English. In the era before Vatican II, Catholic priests would have seen Protestants as heretics and thus would have looked at the fight for French presence in the New World as a fight for the righteous and sanctified true faith in a, a world filled with the evil Protestant English. It's worth noting, I think, that some have found the French father's devotion to ethnic politics and statecraft to border on the heretical. After all, isn't the worship of French presence in the New World like a form of idolatry? Isn't Roman Catholicism supposed to inherit the goal of Rome, which is to be a truly universal church? And doesn't the importation of a strong nationalism into the church count as worshipping France in North America rather than, say, God? Also, isn't the idea of raising a monument to one's own people, even if it's meant merely as a recognition of their rights, isn't that an example of pride, amour de soi, excessive love of self? From a secular democratic point of view, there's also problems, since it seems to show obvious racial aristocratic tendencies. So to many Roman Catholics, the idea of a Catholicism premised on cultivating racial animosity is deeply strange, since cathedrals are supposed to be the seat of the Catholic Church in a region, not an ethnic party headquarters. So it's not just the, uh, from the point of view of the Constitution and its demands for cultural equality that a church with an ethno-nationalist office building in its basement seems incongruous. A certain sort of Catholic might also find that sort of racialist thinking suspiciously uncharitable. It's worthwhile noting as well that many secular philosophers have suggested that politics is in essence evil, and if you pursue it, you're taking the opposite road to the godly one. 
There's an old tradition going back to the writings of Machiavelli in the 15th century that holds that Christian methods and political methods are opposite. Statecraft and politics are violent and coercive in their very nature, a matter of discipline and punishment, as Michel Foucault put it. Taxation and police commissioners and bilingualism commissioners forcing people to do things that, that left in their freedom they wouldn't necessarily do so that politics is essentially diabolic in nature. Violence is its central means, and any good one achieves through politics is invariably accompanied by some forms of force and domination, which is to say, the use of the devil's tools. This line of thinking is most familiar from the works of the tremendous German sociologist and legal historian Max Weber, but a, a very large number of people agree with him in thinking that partisan thinking and party ideology are bad, particularly when they're focused on building regimes of racial discrimination and racial self-preference. Isn't all political language inherently deceptive? Maybe not necessarily lies, but highly selective, mythology-based, mystifying, blurring truthfulness and accuracy, and thus in some ways ungodly. Isn't using your church as a magnifier for ethnic self-love and to uh, launch a segregative system, isn't that a type of desecration? Or if I may translate this point from German sociology into the Roman Catholicism that I grew up with, if you're worshipping the Virgin Mary upstairs and have a chap chapel to Cthulhu in your basement, they cancel each other out. Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, protect us in our battle against the heathen English. That only seems to be a Catholic prayer. En vérité, c'est pas très catholique. It lacks Christian charity, caritas. The brotherhood and sisterhood of Jesus Christ is supposed to put everybody on an equal footing. A nationalist church betrays Christian egalitarian in the same way that using the social contract of France for purposes of ethnic factionalism here betrays the promise of democracy and of secular egalitarianism. I've been using meditation on the Monument de la Reconnaissance and La Plastique, la Cathédrale to meditate upon some of the influence uh, of the imperialist ethnic entrepreneurs among the Acadian priests in laying down the foundation for modern Acadian nationalism and the situation we now have in New Brunswick in 2022-2023. But I also want to delve a bit into another huge influence on nationalism in the 1970s and 1980s, which is the influence of existentialism. In the 1950s, uh, there was an enormous worldwide kind of influence of French culture and existentialism through the uh, popularity of the works of people like Albert Camus and André Morroy and Jean-Paul Sartre, all of whom encouraged readers to look for choice situations, crisis moments in which one could define oneself and become authentic, a real person, the alternative 
is just to drift along without any character in a kind of like vacuous, bad faith status quo, like Jean-Paul Sartre's description of the waiter who allows himself to be made into a robot by his job and never really experiences what it means to be a full human being by never making any real choices about what his values are. The influence of existentialism and developmental psychology, the idea that you've got to keep progressing up another level to keep growing as a human being, not to mention the fact that this generation grew up with television programs, with their stay tuned next week kind of philosophy. Uh, Hubert Aquin's novel Prochain Episode is a great example of that. All of this popularized the belief that individuals and also peoples, which is to say ethnic nations, needed to define themselves by making choices about what their identity was going to be with the idea of revolution or secession, which is a kind of a revolution, offering the kind of event horizon where one can regenerate one's identity in collective action with others. This was astonishingly influential in French Canada, as you can see by the way these ideas soaked into the uh, scholarship even of quintessential establishment figures like the great Quebecois sociologist Marcel Rieu, who thinks of French-Canadian nationalism in terms of what he calls a prise de conscience with a necessarily existentialist dimension. Let me quote from his uh, remarks on the sociological uh, developments of French Canada in French-Canadian society number one from 1964. Quote, For some time now, the traditional interpretation of the history of French Canada has been questioned. Some authors have talked about it as a crise de conscience. One would translate that as crisis of faith, I guess. Others have talked about it as a prise de conscience. One would translate that as an awakening of conscience. These two ideas extend beyond the usual problems of sociography and historiography to raise an issue of the existential basis of knowledge which it's high time that Canadians face. That's the end of the quote, by the way. The existentialist way of putting this is particularly telling because Marcel Rieu was such an establishment figure. And this quote shows that the French-Canadian sociology of the late 50s and early 1960s already considered itself from a group rights point of view and within the terms of a developmental psychology with an emphasis put on existential self-definition. Rieu's crise de conscience et prise de conscience, crisis of consciousness and awakening. Rieu is talking in some ways very much like the way modern ethnic activists in the United States talk of ethnic nationalism as a kind of waking up, becoming woke to the truth of Latino rights or black power or feminism or whatever. Rieu's 1964 text is already talking in that way. Here's another example of the influence of existentialism on French Canada from 15 years later and from an Acadian, Michel Roy's 1978 polemical text, L'Acadie perdue. 
Again, I quote. I'll give you the French first because it's great, and then I'll do the English. Repartir en croisade. On nous propose une nouvelle frontière. Notre avenir n'est plus dans les bois, il est dans les villes, de préférence anglaise. D'eau tournée au Québec. To translate that. Once more, off onto a crusade. Now they're suggesting a new frontier. Our future is no longer in the woods, it's in the cities, preferably the English cities. Back turned to Quebec. End of quote. Hua thinks that uh, Acadians should join mentally and aspirationally with the province of Quebec, which means that French New Brunswick should seek annexation to Quebec in the case of separation and should give up this silly idea of colonizing the English cities. Joining Quebec would be a more natural subject for the next moral crusade of the Acadians, for the French Canadians of New Brunswick uh, are obviously in a deep way connected to those of Quebec. The existentialism come in, comes in because he emphasizes the need to make a choice. Roy talks of the war in Algeria and uses the example of the guerrilla group, the Front de Libération Nationale, the FLN, as a, a model of what it means to seek national self-development through embracing inter-ethnic struggle. Roy admires that the Algerians fighting against the French in North Africa are very decisive. They don't waver. To Roy, the Acadians seem Hamlet-like, uh, indecisive, tied up, weighing pros and cons about everything. Uh, join with Quebec, do nothing, colonize the English cities. Roy argues that Acadians should just launch themselves into action and, and define themselves in the process. They should stop worrying about whether independence is a good thing or not and just embrace it because doing so is a way to come to full adulthood as a people, like the Arabs and Berbers of Algeria did in fighting the French. This is perhaps a good point to reiterate uh, something I mentioned earlier, which is that much as uh, one would like to put the 1960s and 70s behind us, uh, we Canadians can't really do that because the modern Canadian constitution was forged in these ideological movements, including existentialism and the admiration of guerrilla war models. The administrative languages of today and the Constitution Act of 1983 were constructed out of these ideologies, modeled on guerrilla fighters taking over the capital for a cause. The idea of Acadians defining themselves existentially through the colonization of the main managerial posts in the English cities is a good example of this. That's why the ideology of the uh, 1960s and 1970s is so important to understanding the modern Canadian legal order. The North American intellectuals who borrowed from the works of Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre the idea of existentialism as a theory of personality development and growth through events, crisis situations one would create so as to make the choices that build character. These intellectuals completely dropped the part of Camus' thinking that made him a humane and progressive thinker. Camus deplored the use of race ideology, 
because it would create a class of people who can be made into scapegoats and human sacrifices as the French colonizers in Africa had looked on Arabs as a class of people one could sacrifice for one's own gain. Ni victime ni bourreau was Camus' slogan for this. That was the title of one of the chapters of his collected journalism work for the resistance paper Le Combat. Neither victims nor butchers, ni victime ni bourreau. That was the side of Camus and existentialism that the French-Canadian intellectuals dropped behind in their project to assert French presence in North America. They didn't engage much with the neither victims nor butchers ethic uh, and had no problem building a movement based on anti-elitist feelings with the English's scapegoats, uh, les exploiteurs anglais. I don't think I ever heard the word anglais mentioned in Quebec without some version of exploiteur or riche, les anglais riches, les riches anglaises. Uh, it was always in some ways uh, a kind of uh, populist anti-elitism uh, using the English as scapegoats. Camus also uh, popularized uh, an idea of absurdité, where I'm using the term surrealism or paradox, for example, the surrealism of the official languages commissioner being paid to ensure equality and then promoting super-representation for francophones, or the surrealism of social contract talk coming from ethnic communitarians and factionalists. Albert Camus, who was astonishingly famous uh, in the 1940s to a worldwide audience when you could still have such a thing, he talked of absurdity. His example was the irrational and double-tongued culture of a French society that prates about Christian charity, but whose economy is based on sacrificing the entire colonial world outside Paris on the altar of bourgeois comfort back home. Who could believe in the morality of such a system? C'est absurde. In L'étranger, the stranger, his worldwide bestseller of the 1940s, Camus portrayed a French settler, Marceau, shooting an Arab on the beach in Iran. The implication is that in a world where morals float in an absurd and unrealistic confusion, that sort of action makes as much sense as anything else does. Alienated thinking in the sense of not thinking straight, disassociating from reality and entering a fugue state, that's just what happens when your fundamental kind of values in society are very absurd. So, uh, absurdity or surrealism was the word that a lot of mid-20th century analysts of totalitarian consciousness used for the state of bizarreness and confusion uh, and alienation that, that arises when words are used without really following their meaning. No writer on this subject was more influential than Hannah Arendt, who was a public intellectual of the 1950s and 1960s, I guess, more writing. She wrote for magazines like The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books and reached a very, very large audience. Her book on totalitarianism, the, the origins of totalitarianism, focused heavily on the mystifying aspects of ideology, how ideologists insist on never looking too closely at reality. Totalitarian culture really can't stand comparison with realities. 
so it suppresses dissent in the name of a common truth, and the political party acts as an apparatus to discipline the minds of its adherents, making sure that they stick close to the core slogans divined, designed to advance the interests of their class or racial group. Hannah Arendt argued that nationalism and racial self-preference movements were among the easiest to attain mass buy-in for. Nothing like a rally against the Jews to fill a stadium. But while race-based factionalism serves as an easy path to party mobilization, it invariably promised all sorts of future instability. The peculiar combination of self-righteousness and aggression towards others that one finds in late 19th century nationalism, or indeed in 20th and 21st century nationalism, requires an ever more complex denial of reality to keep it in place, since any narrative so simple as to assume that one side is made up of the good guys and the other of the bad guys requires a constant denial of reality to keep them in place. So Arendt saw surrealism and absurdity as preconditions and results of totalitarianism, and in this she was representative of an aesthetic that was very broadly subscribed to by the people, by most people on the left before the 1990s. One of the tendencies that most bothered Arendt was scapegoating as a way of never looking at the negatives of your own culture, like a quote from The Origins of Totalitarianism. The anti-Semites, who called themselves patriots, introduced that new species of national feeling, which consists primarily in a complete whitewash of one's own people and a sweeping condemnation of all others. Nationalist movements focus negativity outward so as to increase group solidarity through outrage at the behavior of others. The more outrage, the better, since the party grows through opposition. It comes kind of a zero-tolerance, hyper-nationalism designed to exploit outrage because that's what allows you to fill stadiums and effectively suppress the voice of critics. I've always thought that it's one of the enduring ironies of Canadian intellectual history that the generation that thought that young people should throw off the past so as to define themselves for themselves in an existentialism-inflected fashion. This same generation of ethnic nationalists was the most efficient ever in locking their own public policies into a constitutionalized form so as to bind all future generations, making sure that future generations would never be able to escape the policy compromises of the 1970s. Revolution for us, but then that's it, that's all. After that, things should freeze as they are, just as we like them, locking in our privileges. And we have activist judges to ensure that these policies, which favor us, are sealed into law now and forever. Bilingualism law in New Brunswick makes the policy compromises between French and English back in the 1970s into forever law. So on the one hand, this generation thought existential self-definition through political change to be an absolute necessity for a well-lived life. On the other hand, once they got that, they constitutionalized everything 
sealed it into legalistic concrete, hardwired it in at the deepest level of the law, in the Constitution, sealing in even bizarre new inventions, such as the idea of linguistic rights, which I'll be talking about in the next few episodes, so that nobody can ever get away from 1970s-era ideals and ideas. Existentialist self-definition for us, police officers and auditing bureaus and activist judges to ensure compliance from you and yours forever and ever. Amen. That's probably enough provocative thinking for one day, so I think I'll sign off here. In my next episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit, actually doing quite a deep dive into Acadian legal theory and into the legal changes that have occurred over the past 50 years to give us the bilingualism regime that we live in today. And then in the episode after that one, I'm going to talk a little bit about California and about what my students at UCLA thought about the Acadians and how thinking about California helps us think a little bit about Acadia. If you found all this interesting, I hope you'll come back for another one of these episodes. I've posted some bilingualism animations on YouTube with excerpts from this podcast. And then once a month on Patreon, I'm going to post a question and answer style podcast to summarize and respond to the interesting and provocative comments that I expect people will want to make about all of this on the comment boards on those YouTube videos. So if you want to correct me, if you think I've made some error historically uh, or in representing the Acadian case, leave me some message on the YouTube comment board and I'll, I'll, I'll try to respond. Also, if you want to help me with my good works, then maybe you could donate to my uh, GoFundMe account. Uh, I, if I get sufficient donations, uh, I'd like to translate this series into French and then do it all over again en français. Thanks for checking in. I've been your host, Brian Esparza-Walker, and I hope you'll come back to join me again for another helping of tasty mind snacks from the philosophical steam tables and tidy intellectual cupboards of late-night Canadian political philosophy with Scorpio Magoose.